MacCast, Sunday, January 23rd, 2022. Hey, Mac Geeks, it's time for your MacCast, the show for Mac Geeks by Mac Geeks. I'm Adam, and this is a show where we discuss all things Macintosh. How you doing? Welcome back to the MacCast. Glad to be back here with you for... Another week of Apple news, tips, tricks, and goings-ons in the Apple and Mac community. I hope you are doing amazing, uh, having a great weekday, weekend, whatever it might be. I have a monitor that's freaking out on me. Hopefully that thing will settle down. I just noticed, I looked over, and my uh, second monitor is just flickering on and off. Hopefully that's not the signs of a bigger problem. Uh, we'll deal with it for now, but I may be looking at a reboot here in a second. I'll let you know if that happens. Regardless, uh, we have a ton of great things to get into this week. A little light on the news, but not too bad. We've got some things to talk about. We'll talk about iPhone SE and uh, more updates on what's going on with that, along with a few other iPhone uh, bits and bobs, I guess we might say. Got a little bit of international news this week, a few different little micro stories happening internationally, so things you might be interested in. Got some numbers on Apple Music to talk about, and then just a crud ton, is that is that the technical term? Crud ton of Apple TV Plus news happening. Like I said, it's a little bit lighter week when it comes to the Apple news, but we do have some really great topics to get into in the feedback and questions section. I got some great comments from you, uh, great questions from you this week. We're going to get into troubleshooting memory leaks and talk about memory leaks and what might be going on there. We're going to get into how to identify your other files and cleanup that you might be able to do there. And then uh, we'll talk a little bit about KVMs. And I have a great thing of the moment this week, something that I found that I think you're going to really, really like, especially if you're into cooking. So should be a great episode. I say we just dive right into things, starting with display analyst Ross Young. He claimed in a tweet this week that Apple will call the third generation iPhone SE, which is expected to be announced this year, maybe even this spring, the iPhone SE Plus 5G. That's pretty uh, pretty apt description of what we're expecting it to be. It's widely expected that uh, the new iPhone SE will retain the design of the current iPhone SE with a 4.7-inch display, a single lens but improved rear camera, and still have a home button. The main upgrades are expected to be an update to an Apple I think they'll go with an A15, although I did see one report that was saying an A14, but definitely an upgraded Apple processor in addition to adding 5G support. So iPhone SE Plus 5G would be a very apt description. Feels a little bit odd, though. Um, Ross Young is fairly accurate at his predictions, so, you know, we will we will take this one with a grain of salt, but I mean, he's done a pretty good job in the past. So it feels like an odd naming convention, especially adding the plus in there. Cause historically that has meant a larger screen iPhone. Uh, and the last time Apple did an iPhone name with a designation as to what the cellular speeds were or the cellular capabilities were is I think the iPhone three G. I don't think they've done it since then. So 5G may be significant enough that the marketing team kind of got that one in, 
but we'll have to wait and see. Young is also making predictions that uh, the next generation, the, the next generation of the iPhone SE, uh, following that one, so I guess that would be the fourth generation, uh, would release sometime in 2023 instead of 2024, which is something I think we talked about on the last episode. Most folks are predicting that the fourth generation of the iPhone SE is going to come with a design change a larger 5.7-inch or 6.1-inch display, but Ross seems to think that it is going to be a 5.7-inch display, again, sometime in 2023. So we might get a yearly release of the iPhone SE if that turns out to be true. But we're going to have to wait and see if that uh, comes to be. As for timing of the release of the next iPhone SE, seems like it could be getting pretty close the French blog Consumac spotted listings for unreleased iPad and iPhone models in the Eurasian Economic Commission database this week. The filings are something that are legally required for any devices that offer encryption sold in Russia and select other countries, so they can be an indicator that Apple is getting ready to launch new products. We've seen this happen in the past. The belief is that these rumored model numbers are for the updated iPhone SE and probably an iPad uh, series of iPad Air 5 models, so next generation of the iPad Air. Now, we've talked about the next iPad Air before on the podcast, but it is expected to have the same size and design as the current model, but with an updated A15 Bionic chip, a 12-megapixel ultra-wide front-facing camera, likely with center stage, center stage support, and Apple would also update it to support 5G on the wireless. So moving 5G across the board, that makes a lot of sense. And for now, it's looking like we'll see the launch of the iPhone SE sometime in the second half of the year, around April, maybe early May, based on predictions again from Ross Young. This is based on his belief that the iPhone SE display panels are entering production this month. As for how overall iPhone sales have gone in the past year, we have new fourth quarter numbers this week from Canalis, and they think that the iPhone was the most shipped smartphone worldwide for the quarter. Apple's iPhone accounted for 22% of worldwide smartphone shipments. Still, that was down 1% from the 23% share they had a year ago in the same quarter. And overall, the report noted that smartphone shipments only grew 1% year over year, largely due to issues with the supply chain. And then Apple responded to the news from last week that they had stopped issuing security updates for iOS 14 and that they were requiring customers who can to upgrade to iOS 15 to receive future updates. Apple gave a statement to Ars Technica that they only ever intended the option to be, quote, temporary. And then they also pointed at 9to5Mac to a support page that stated that they intended to, quote, offer important security updates for iOS and iPad OS 14 users for a, quote, period of time. So uh, the idea, I guess, Apple is saying that they essentially uh, only wanted to give users some time to wait until iOS 15, at least the early versions, any bugs were worked out, and then they were always expecting to go back to their policy of kind of heavy-handedly forcing 
iOS updates. And I guess Apple feels now that iOS 15 is stable enough that uh, users should be upgrading. And so they are sunsetting the delayed stay on iOS 14 option. So just be aware if you haven't updated to iOS 15 yet and you want to get the latest patches, security updates, and all those sorts of things, you are likely going to have to move on if your phone supports it or your device supports it to iOS 15. We have a few little international news stories in Apple news this week, starting with Apple Pay soon coming to Argentina and Peru. Apple updated the Latina American Apple Pay page with coming soon messaging for those two countries. 9to5Mac had previously noted that Interbank had slipped up on the news and put a brief statement on their website, but that was later removed. Still looks like it will be happening sometime soon. So if you're in Argentina or Peru, get ready for Apple Pay. The latest release candidates of the HomePod software version 15.3 look to be adding multi-user support for users in Italy and India. Multi-user support on the HomePod lets up to six people have access to their own playlists, messages, calendars, and more. The beta release should be available to all users and the form of a public release sometime soon. Then Apple is also getting ready to stop including earpods in French iPhones. Apple had stopped including uh, earpods with iPhones back with the release of iPhone 12 in most countries, but in France, a regulation required the inclusion of, quote, an accessory making it possible to limit the exposure to the head of radioelectric emissions during communications. Basically, they worried about your cell phone frying your brain and wanted to have a way or an option for consumers to protect themselves from that. That regulation was recently overridden at the end of last year and replaced with one that favors the environment, which was actually the main reason Apple had said they were no longer including headphones with their products, all to reduce environmental waste. Apple had sold a unique double box version of the iPhone in France with a second box containing the earpods. This will be removed from the packaging starting from the week of January 24th, 2022. So, yep, coming to France, you're no longer getting those earpods in your, uh, along with your iPhone, you will have to buy that accessory separately uh, like it is in much of the rest of the world. Turning to a little bit of Apple Music news, Apple Music is still number two, at least according to data from Media Research that shows Apple Music is the second most popular service globally after Spotify. Their numbers are from the second quarter of 2021, and based on their predictions and calculations, since Apple doesn't officially announce subscriber numbers, they estimate that Apple Music has a 15% share of the streaming market well behind Spotify which had a 31% share. Overall, the total number of subscribers to streaming services has grown by 109.5 million users or subscribers, or about 26% year over year. And then finally, we will round out the news for this week with a number of Apple TV Plus stories, starting with Apple hiring a new producer. This is according to Deadline. Apple has recently done a deal with Kevin Walsh, who was the president of Ridley Scott's Scott Free Productions, to become a producer of Apple TV Plus shows under the umbrella of his own production company, The Walsh Company. The collaboration is a multi-year deal that will see Walsh produce films and television projects for Apple. 
Walsh will continue to produce on a Ridley Scott production already in production for Apple TV+, Napoleon, which was formerly known as Kitbag. The production has Ridley Scott directing and stars Joaquin Phoenix and Vanessa Kirby. Apple TV Plus films and television shows have picked up another few award uh, award nominations, starting with nine NAACP award nominations. The nominations include CODA for Independent Picture, Denzel Washington in The Tragedy of Macbeth, and Mershala Ali in Swan Song for Actor in a Motion Picture, Octavia Spencer of Truth Be Told for Actress in a Drama Series, Alfrey Woodward in C for Supporting Actress in a Drama Series, and Ashley Nicole Black for Ted Lasso in Writing in a Comedy Series. Apple also picked up a number of nominations in the Visual Effects Society Awards. Apple received nods for TV series and movies like C, Finch, and Foundation in categories like Outstanding Supporting Visual Effects in an Episode, Outstanding Animated Character character in a Photo Reel Feature, and Outstanding Visual Effects in a Photo Reel Episode. The winners of the VES Awards will be announced on March 8, 2022. Apple announced that they will be releasing a live-action Godzilla and Titans TV series based on Legendary's MonsterVerse franchise. What is the Legendary MonsterVerse franchise, you ask? It is actually a series of films from Legendary Pictures that includes titles like Godzilla, Kong Skull Island and Godzilla vs. Kong. You may be familiar with those movies. The series will be set following the thunderous battle of Godzilla and the Titans that leveled San Francisco and will, quote, explore one family's journey to uncover buried secrets and a legacy linking them to a secret organization known as Monarch. The series will be produced by Legendary Television and have Chris Black, known for Star Trek Enterprise and Outcast, serving as an executive producer and showrunner, with Matt Fraction of Hawkeye serving as a co-producer. The series will premiere globally when it's ready, but Apple has not revealed a release date yet. And then finally in entertainment, Apple TV Plus News, Apple has reportedly signed a second multi-year deal with Skydance Media. Apple already has a deal in place with Skydance Animation, and they are the production company behind Foundation. Under this new deal, it will see Skydance, quote, develop and produce an annual slate of live-action, global-minded movies that will be released through Apple Online Films. So Apple continuing to rack in new content and new partnerships, and I have to say, I am loving Apple TV Plus still, and it does just get better and better. And the quality of the content on there, I think, is second to none. I think Apple really deserves some kudos for putting that together and um, deserves some credit for really creating some outstanding content. And I'm looking forward to more of it. And it looks like more is definitely coming. I'm really excited about the whole MonsterVerse thing. I think it's going to be really fun. I've enjoyed all of those films And if Apple can take it further with some TV series, I think that's going to be amazing. Uh, If you have thoughts, opinions on this, I'd love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, shoot me an email, send me an audio comment, maccast at gmail.com.
And with that, that is going to do it for the news for this week. Like I said, not a lot to cover this time around. But before we move on, I do want to take a quick moment and thank a show sponsor. And that is New Relic. Look, if you're a software engineer, you've been there. It's 9 p.m. You're finally unwinding from work, trying to relax. Your phone buzzes with an alert. Something's broken and your mind's already racing as to what could be wrong. Is it the back end or the front end? Is it the network? Did I introduce a bug in my last deploy? Now you've got your whole team scrambling from tool to tool and messaging person after person to find and fix the issue. That won't happen if you get New Relic. Believe me, as a web developer, I've been there, and I've also been lucky enough to have New Relic available on projects and it's amazing it's a time saver when you have to troubleshoot issues like this new relic combines 16 different monitoring products that you'd normally buy separately so engineering teams can see across their entire software stack in one place more importantly you can pinpoint issues down to the line of code so you know exactly why the problem happened and can resolve it quickly that's why the dev and op teams at DoorDash, GitHub, Epic Games, and more than 14,000 other companies use New Relic to debug and improve their software. Whether you're a cloud-native startup or a Fortune 500 company, it takes just five minutes to set up New Relic in your environment. That next 9 p.m. call is just waiting to happen, so get New Relic before it does. And you can get access to the whole New Relic platform and 100 gigabytes of data free forever, no credit card required. Sign up at newrelic.com slash maccast. That's N-E-W-R-E-L-I-C dot com slash maccast. Newrelic.com slash maccast. And a big thank you to New Relic for their support of the show. Not long ago, we were having discussions on the podcast with some owners of new M1, M1 Pro, and M1 Max systems running into out-of-memory errors. You may remember that. We had some long conversations going back and forth. At the time, it seemed like only a few owners were being impacted, and some of it might have just been chalked up to growing pains, I think, as developers worked through transitioning their apps to universal binaries, moving them over to support Apple Silicon and the M1 processors. Anthony this week emailed me to say that he got a low memory warning for the first time on his M1 Max, and he found something interesting. When he went to check, he was using iStep menus, and he found that his ad blocker, AdBlock 1, was using an incredible amount of RAM, 60 gigabytes of RAM, and that force quitting the app freed up the memory um, and that helped resolve the issue for him. But it does bring up, for me, a good category of apps that, you know, we might forget to check when we're troubleshooting these kinds of issues. And that's extensions, in this case, specifically browser extensions. So it could be Safari, it could be Firefox, Chrome. It doesn't really matter. A lot of our browsers have extensions or just other apps that have extensions. And you wouldn't necessarily, you know, think of these right off the bat because, they're not apps that you launch or run, right? You're launching some other app and then there is an app basically running inside that app. And memory leaks are a thing that can really impact any application, uh, not just extensions, but, you know, this is an extra category that might be worth looking into. And they really can affect any machine, regardless of whether it's an Intel or an Apple Silicon machine. So it really comes down 
to the software and the developer, and it could even happen with an update and can be all very specific. So it can be something that can be a little bit hard to troubleshoot, but we can kind of easily identify when we might have a memory leak or at least something in an app where the app is using a little bit too much memory on our systems. So I thought we'd talk about that a little bit. If you go in and use the activity monitor, you can go in and see how much memory applications are using. So uh, if you go into applications, utilities, and then launch the application monitor, you click on the memory tab. And then I think the easiest way to do this is uh, click on the memory column to sort by the usage. And there you will see which apps are using the most amount of memory and how much memory each app is using. And if there's something using an excessive amount you can actually force quit that app or quit that app and hopefully free up that RAM, get it back and stop those out of memory uh, issues. Now, if you launch it again and it continues to chew through RAM, that could be a sign that you possibly have a memory leak. Now, that might not happen right away because oftentimes if an application or a program has a memory leak, there could be different actions or different behaviors that you have to do first to kind of trigger that leak. So it's possible... You might not see it right away. It could look fine when it starts running, but a little bit later, right, you come back, you look in the activity monitor, and suddenly it's chewing through RAM. Now, unfortunately, if the app does have a memory leak, there's probably not much you could do about it besides, you know, quitting the app when it starts to happen and kind of starting over, and then maybe hoping that the developer has been alerted to the issue and issues a patch for the app at some point. Now, if you could reliably repeat the issue. So if you find that there's a series of steps that leads to the memory leak, that might be something that you could email the developer, you contact the developer and their support, provide them with those specific steps that trigger the leak, and that could help them eventually patch their application. So if you're that lucky, that would be a nice thing to do. Just contact the developer, say, hey, I noticed this thing. Uh, when I do A, B, and C, the app is starting to chew through the memory and then I get out of memory error and kind of give them some screenshots and additional information about your environment, you know, what operating system. The more information that you can give a developer when you're trying to get to support, the better. You know, don't just send them an email saying, hey, I think you have a memory leak, it's broken, fix it. Like, that's not very helpful. If you can do a little bit of troubleshooting, point them in the right direction, you're going to get a lot better response. But, you know, at least you might be able to identify where an app is kind of going off the rails and chewing up some of your memory. Now, some other things to note when you're reviewing memory in the activity monitor in the memory tab, a few other things you might want to look at. At the bottom, there is a nice little graph called memory pressure, and that will show you if your machine is using memory efficiently over time. Now, ideally, you want to see that being all green. That means everything's going great with your memory. You have enough memory. Your apps aren't uh, using too much of it. If you notice that it's yellow or worse, red, that might be a sign that an app is consuming excessive memory or maybe that you just have too many apps open and using memory uh, for you know, what's available on your system for the resources that are available on your system. And, you know, again, it's going to depend on what kinds of apps you have open and what you're really running. You know, if you're running very memory heavy, intensive applications, you're going to be able to have fewer of those open concurrently without chewing up all your memory. But looking at that memory pressure can give you a, a good idea or sign of how many apps you can have running, or what kinds of apps you can have running. So you could use this as a tool to kind of figure that out. And if you are seeing yellow and red in there, that's a good sign that 
hey, maybe you want to shut down some apps, close some things down. Now, generally, the operating system should be managing this pretty well and assuming the apps are written to play nice with macOS and in the ways that Apple recommends. Uh, your operating system should be able to shut down background applications and manage the memory. But again, not all apps are created equal. So this is just a good tool that you have in your arsenal to go in and kind of look at this. Another thing to pay attention to in the memory tab is the swap. That's another stat that's worth looking at. If the amount of swap you see in terms of the total uh, size, you know, if it's hundreds of gigabytes, you can have a pretty good idea that you have a problem with your memory. Basically, that your apps are constantly exceeding the physical RAM that's on your system and having to use your hard drive as swap to move items in and out of memory. If you see that, that can be a problem, especially if you have an older Mac with a spinning hard drive. Uh, if it's using a lot of swap, that's when you're going to start seeing a lot of that pinwheeling that we all hate, you know, the beach ball of death. It can have a really big impact on performance. That's because, uh, you know, traditional spinning hard drives aren't really that quick. They're certainly not as fast as solid state RAM, you know, the, the RAM. Now, machines with SSDs, this is far less of an issue. Uh, it's pretty efficient. It's pretty fast, um, but uh, it's still less ideal than just using the RAM that's built into your system. So if you're constantly seeing very large amounts of swap, you might consider, again, reducing the number of apps that you have open at any one time, or you might want to monitor your apps a little bit more closely to see if there's one that is ex using an excessive amount of RAM and maybe forcing your machine to go into that swap situation. Anytime you're moving into using a lot of swap memory, you're going to see a little bit of a hit in performance. Again, if you have an SSD, you might not notice it, but definitely if you have a spinning hard drive, that can be an issue. And if you have the ability, if you're seeing that a lot and you know it's just normal operation, it could be a sign that you really need more RAM. Now, in this day and age, right, a lot of our Macs, you can't just install more RAM in, so you might have to just consider that the next time you're making a purchase of a new machine when you go to upgrade. Uh, so maybe if you had 8 gigabytes of RAM, you might consider going to 16 or 32. Uh, if you do, if you're lucky enough and you have an older Mac system and you can add more RAM, that might be a sign that you want to add more RAM. So there's a lot of things you can do there. Uh, hopefully this gives you some thoughts and ideas on how to better sort of monitor and manage RAM usage on your Mac. Some other tools that might be helpful in monitoring and just managing RAM. I already mentioned iStat Menu, which is a great just monitoring tool for all kinds of things on your Mac. You can look at RAM, you can look at processor usage, you can look at your uh, your fans and the temperature of components on your system. It is a great tool, menu bar app. Uh, I use it, absolutely love it. And then also clean my Mac X. Um, that is another great tool that can help you look at and even better purge memory uh, and clear things out if you are having memory issues. So a couple things to look into. Uh, hopefully this uh, helps you out with, um, you know, looking at memory leaks and just managing memory. If you have additional tips and tricks, uh, send those along maccast at gmail.com. Moving from memory, let's look a little bit at storage. Something that comes up from time to time here on the MacCast is what the heck is other? It's a big question, and it's exactly what JC asked me this week via email. If you look at the storage on your Mac, so go under the Apple menu, go to About This Mac, and click on the Storage tab. 
you'll get a little bar chart representing the kinds of storage and the amount of storage that's being used on your Mac. They also have this on iOS. It's basically divided up into categories, things like documents, photos, iCloud Drive, music, books, and other. And often other, for most of us, is the largest chunk, or at least in the top two or three largest amounts of storage used on our Mac. But it's super vague, right? It's it's like Apple just says, oh, it's just other. Um, And so a lot of people go, well, great. What is other? And more importantly, how do I get rid of it? Like, how do I clean off some of those other files uh, and make extra room on my hard drive? And other really includes a bunch of stuff that just doesn't fit into those other categories. They're not part of your documents. They're not part of your photos. And let me expand on that a little bit. So you're likely to see things like temporary system files or archives or disk images. So these would be things like installers that you might download, software installers, uh, personal user data, files from your user library. So that library folder, all that stuff in there, or most of that stuff in there falls in this other category. So those are things like application support files, iCloud files, screensavers. You'll also have cache files. There's a lot of cache on your system for different applications, different functions. All of those things are part of that other. Uh, Fonts, plugins, extensions, all part of other. Hidden files, Also, other files that are just not recognized by Spotlight Search. So anything, again, that just doesn't fit into one of those other buckets ends up falling into other. And so that's what it is. The next question is, can I clean it out? How do I find it? What do I do with it? I'm going to cover a couple different ways you can do that, starting with some of the categories and some of the manual ways that you can go identify that stuff and potentially remove it. Now, Before we get into this, I do want to say that you need to be very careful with these files because a lot of them are in system areas. They're in your library areas. A lot of your apps might rely upon some of these files for support. You know, they're supporting files for your applications and things like that. So be very careful about what you're removing and what you're deleting if you're doing this manually because it can go wrong. So needless to say, because of that, You probably want to make sure that you have really good backups of these files before you start deleting, because if you accidentally delete something and something goes wrong, you're going to want the ability to be able to restore that. So make sure you're doing a good job with your backups. You have time machine backups or clone backups. However you're doing your backups, make sure those are available before you just go in and willy-nilly start deleting stuff. Uh, You might also do a little research. Like a lot of times if I'm going in and I'm identifying files and I'm not sure about something, I'll just do some Google searching on it and make sure I understand what it is before I delete it. We're not going to get into a lot of details on it, specifically what's inside each of these folders. I'm just going to show you kind of where they are and where you might be able to delete some of the content to free up your space. So it's really going to be on you to fully understand what you're actually deleting. Don't just delete things willy-nilly. Okay, so with that warning out of the way, let's talk about some of these different categories. So system and temporary files. If you go into your finder and use the go menu uh, and uh, you can hold down the option key on the go menu and that will give you access to your library folder. So you hold that down, you should see an option called library. Uh, You could also go under the go menu and say go to folder and then type in a file path. Basically you need to go into your users folder 
uh, into your user account folder, your home folder, and then to the library folder in that in that folder. And it's normally a hidden file. So if you haven't enabled it, you do have to do, do the trick where you hold down the option key, go to the go menu, you can, you can select the library folder. And in this case, you're going to want to navigate to or just find the application support folder in your library folder. And what you're going to see in there is a lot of folders, most of them related to specific applications. Uh, and you'll see a lot of files in here. So again, be careful. But you might see some references to old apps that maybe you deleted a long time ago. Maybe you dumped that app. You're not using it anymore. And if you see that application support folder in there, so, uh, you know, application support folder and then folder for some app I don't use anymore, that might be one that would be ripe for removal. And you could look at that. You could see how much storage it's taking up and decide, hey, do I want to dump that, get rid of it, clean it up and get it out of there? And that'll free up some of that other storage space. Another folder you might want to look at in here is the caches folder. Again, hold down the options key under the go menu in the finder, choose on, choose library, and then look at the caches folder. Now, cache on your Mac is usually typically pretty safe to delete because it'll get recreated either by the system or the application that needs it. So a lot of times, a lot of people will recommend, hey, you can just basically select everything in the caches folder drag it to the trash, empty the trash, get it out of there. And if it needs to come back, the app will recreate it. The app might take a little bit longer the first time you launch it after deleting the cache, but hey, it should come back a lot like deleting your browser cache. Now, if you're really concerned about it, something you might want to do is hold down the option key and drag the caches folder to your desktop. That will cause it to make a copy of the entire folder before you delete anything in there. Then you can launch your applications, run your system for a little bit, a little while. And if everything seems okay, if you have no problems, then you could just delete the caches folder from your desktop. Because obviously, you know, by duplicating that, you're actually doubling the problem. If you're already running low on storage space, you're eventually going to want to get that out of there. But it gives you a little bit of time to kind of have a backup right there that you could easily just drag back into your, into the folder and kind of restore that. So just something you might want to think about if you're planning on deleting the caches. But again, deleting cache, generally a pretty safe operation. Similar to how we mentioned, you know, plugins maybe being an area, plugins or extensions being an area where you might identify memory leaks, uh, they are also a thing that can take up storage on your Mac, and they might be things that you completely forgot about. Now, uh, plugins are commonly related to your browser, so I'll kind of share with you how to check and remove them from Safari, but there would be a similar process if you're a Chrome user or a Firefox user, you know, just look through all your browsers, look at your extensions, find any that you might not be using anymore, and you can clear those out. So in Safari, if you open up Safari, select uh, under the Safari menu preferences and click on the extensions tab, you can review and remove any extensions that you don't need by selecting them in the list and then clicking the uninstall button inside Safari. Now, if uh, you just want to disable that extension, uh, you can also do that. Obviously, that's not going to free up space, but at least you can kind of turn it off for a while, make sure that it's not something you need, and then come back and delete it. So you can uh, uncheck the little checkbox next to the extension name, and that will simply disable the extension within your browser. You might also have plugins for apps, uh, so you could go and review those things. You know, basically think about your extensions and plugins, kind of this extraneous stuff that are really companion apps to your main application. 
and uh, clean any of that stuff out if you're really not using it anymore or maybe you don't need it. Archived files like zip files or maybe installers like application installers, things you've downloaded to maybe your downloads folder. Yeah, those things can generally be pretty big. And if you've left them on your system or they've gotten buried somewhere, they might be taking up a lot of space and they fall in this other category. So this is something you might want to look for on your system as well. So here you can open up the finder and then in the search field, type kind, K-I-N-D, colon archive and hit return. That will uh, do a search for any files of the kind archive archive and show them to you in the results list then make sure that the the size column is visible if not you can right click on the column header and just turn it on with the checkbox and then click on the size column to sort it by size and you're going to want to click until it sorts largest file size to smallest and then you should be able to see and quickly review any large archive files like dmg files or zip files and if you no longer need those you can remove them from your system and that will clean things up. And I've generally found like you can find some pretty large files when you're looking at uh, especially application installers for some apps. So that's a great way to clear off some of that other space. And then a few other library locations that you might want to check. Again, these are locations in your home library folder. You can also look in the system library folder. So at the root of your hard drive, uh, there is also a library folder there. Um, but again, reminder to go to your home library folder, hold down the option key, click on the go menu in the finder and choose library. And then a few other folders you might want to look at are things like your logs folder. So a lot of applications uh, and things on your Mac will write to log files. Um, you can clean these out. A lot of times these are files, again, that would get regenerated. So if you don't need to go back and look at old log files, you could kind of purge those, get those cleaned up. You can look at the containers folder uh, here. Again, this is a folder used by many apps. So you might find subfolders in there for specific apps that you no longer use or that you've deleted. You might want to clean those out. Uh, you can look at the screensavers folder. If you have ever installed any third-party screensavers and you're not using those anymore, those might be in there. So lots of little locations that you can go in and clean out all of this quote-unquote other stuff. Now, I know I've thrown a lot at you. If all of this feels a little bit daunting uh, to do manually and uh, you're worried about maybe deleting something that you shouldn't, I would actually recommend an app, Clean My Mac X. Uh, they've been a sponsor on the show, so full disclosure, disclosure, they're not a current sponsor, but I've used their software for years and it is amazing. It has a bunch of tools and utilities that can help you find and safely remove a lot of these files. They've kind of done some of that heavy lifting for you. You're still going to have to identify some of the files in some cases, so still be careful, but it's a little bit easier, I think, and safer way to kind of get rid of some of this stuff. A few of the ones, uh, utilities that I would highlight within the app, uh, they have a large and old files tool that will help you find stuff that maybe you've forgotten about and you can probably archive off someplace else. So maybe you have old project files, those sorts of things. It can really surface a lot of the big files on your system. Uh, you can do this with um, with the uh, storage tool or the, yeah, the storage tool that's built into your Mac too. So if you go under the Apple menu, choose storage, 
there's manage storage button. You can click on that and get kind of a similar tool. I just find the one in Clean My Mac X uh, a little bit easier and kind of prettier, I guess, to work with. It's easier to find stuff, I think. Another thing that uh, Clean My Mac X has is the system junk scan. And this is the one that really goes in and identifies a lot of the stuff in that other category that we discussed. And it will do a scan. It will give you a really nice list of different categories and different kinds of things. You can look for different kinds of things like cache files, like log files. Again, a lot of the things that we've been talking about, it'll help you help you identify and clean those things up. And then once you've got everything cleaned up, if you want to be a little bit more proactive about content that might wind up, say, in the application support folder or the caches folder for different apps when you want to remove those apps, Clean My Mac X has a great uninstaller that you can use because most of our apps these days don't have uninstallers. Typically, the uninstall process, as a lot of us know on the Mac, is go into the applications folder, drag the application to the trash, empty the trash. But that can leave as we've identified here, a lot of these little bits and pieces of the app behind that are in system locations in the library folder, the uninstaller in Clean My Mac X will actually go in, find all that stuff, figure out where it is, and help you remove that. So I, if I want to remove an app from my Mac, will always just use Clean My Mac X, and that way I know I get all of it off my system. I'm not leaving any bits and pieces behind And uh, that helps keep my system clean and also helps reduce the size of that other category of storage. So a lot of really great ways to kind of go in, clean out, manage, and uh, get a little bit more storage space back on your Mac. If you have any questions about this, uh, feel free to shoot me an email. Uh, at maccast at gmail.com. I know there's also a bunch of other great tools for this. Uh, Finding large files, Daisy Disk is a great one. Um, And that's what I've used in the past as well. I know there's other tools out there. So if you have additional recommendations for kind of keeping your hard drive clean, getting more space back, those sorts of things, and you have a tool that you really like, uh, shoot me an email or better yet, send us a little pick of the moment or thing of the moment kind of uh, review. Keep it to two or three minutes and send those along audio to maccast at gmail.com and I'll be happy to share, share those with the community on future episodes. Now let's talk about something that uh, we used to have back in the day. I'm going to call this Whatever Happened to KVMs. And in case you don't know what KVM stands for, it stands for Keyboard, Video, and Mouse. Uh, And back in the day when you had multiple computers and you wanted to hook them up to a single monitor, mouse, and keyboard uh, and be able to switch between them, you would buy what was called a KVM switch, a keyboard video mouse switch. And it literally had a button on it and you would tap it and your display would switch over from one machine to the other. And then the keyboard and mouse in front of you would operate, you know, whatever machine that you were working on. And they were great. But nowadays... We mostly have wireless Bluetooth mice and keyboards, and the concept of a physical KVM switch has really gone away. I know they still exist, but they really don't apply in a lot of cases to our kind of modern way of working. But still, what I'm finding is, especially now that a lot of folks have gone remote, uh, many of us have maybe an office machine at home and a personal machine occupying the same desk space. And you don't want to have two mice and two keyboards and four monitors 
you know, all of that gets to be a bit cumbersome. And I've had a lot of you, like Dan, uh, email in and say, what's the modern solution to this issue? I want to have a single mouse, a single keyboard, uh, one, one or two monitors, and I want that to work for, you know, two machines that I have sitting on my desk. So what do I do? And I think this is one of the reasons why Apple is bringing us universal control in Mac OS Monterey, right? This is the feature that would solve that, where you can seamlessly move from one Mac to another, or from a Mac to an iPad using a single mouse and keyboard, and it's controlled in software. You just basically drag your, your mouse from one display to the other, and it switches over, right? Uh, that's, the, that's the hope. That's the dream with universal control. Uh, but that feature hasn't rolled out yet, and it's only going to be supported on newer Macs, 2016 20 to 2018 models and later, depending upon which model of Mac that you have. I think it's any Macs that probably have continuity handoff support. And so Dan was asking me about, you know, what kind of current solutions do you have if I want basically a KVM switch for my systems? And honestly, I don't know. I don't know much. Um, I do know that out on the market, there are at least some mice and keyboards that offer support for multiple Bluetooth connections uh, and setups. They'll typically have a button or a switch on them or maybe like a one, two, three button that will allow you to basically pair it with up to three machines. And then at the press of a button, you can switch that Bluetooth connection from machine to machine. Because again, the, the underlying problem is, you know, Bluetooth is great. We can use that with you know, a Bluetooth keyboard with multiple devices. But as you know, switching between devices can be a pain in the butt. Oftentimes you have to unpair from one device and then pair to another device. It is not easy. It's not simple. It is not fun. So these keyboards and mice that can connect to multiple machines and then add a button switch between Bluetooth uh, make that process a little bit easier. But that's not quite a full keyboard video mouse switch. Now, Dan asked about Logitech Flow, which was something that I didn't know about. It's something offered with Logitech keyboards and mice. And it promises a functionality, I think, similar to Apple's universal control, where when you drag the cursor you know, to the edge of a screen, it will just switch from one machine to another. It looks like it works cross-platform, which would be an advantage over Apple's universal control. I have no idea how well it works or doesn't work because I don't have uh, a Logitech flow system. So if you've had experience, it looks like it might even be in beta. So I don't even know if this is out on the market yet. It may be similar to universal control where it's kind of coming and they're working on it, but it hasn't happened. So it seems like a lot of people are thinking about this, but again, the one area it seems to be ignoring is switching monitors. So it'll do it for your keyboard and your mouse when going between different machines, but you still have to have different displays because you're dragging the cursor from one display to the other. So it sounds like we still need some sort of thing for switching monitors. Now, there are monitor switching products out there, so I assume you could add this to that kind of setup. But again, it just doesn't feel quite as clean as the old, good old traditional KVM. So... I don't know what the perfect solution is, and that's where I'm going to turn to you, the community, and ask, are you using a single monitor keyboard and mouse setup with multiple Macs or Macs and PCs? And if you are doing it, how are you managing it seamlessly? How is it working for you? What's your setup? Can you share that with us? Let us know what products you're using. 
shoot me an email, send me an audio comment, mattcast at gmail.com. Cause I don't, I don't know what the perfect solution for this is. And I would love to know because I'm going to have, mul- I have multiple machines set up and literally I'm disconnecting and reconnecting cables. It's, it's really not fun, not ideal. Uh, I guess you could probably do some sort of dock setup, but again, there, uh, I don't want to necessarily connect my drives to my work machine and vice versa, you know, like my personal drives and stuff like that. So I'm curious what kinds of solutions people are using, what products are out there. There might be something that I don't even know about. I'm sure there's something I don't even know about that probably you're using. So shoot me an email, send me an audio comment, maccast at gmail.com. Okay, lastly today, uh, I want to give you a thing of the moment, and this is a great one for cooks. I'm not even a cook, and I kind of got excited about this. It's a new cooking app uh, for iPhone and iPad from an indie developer, Will Bishop. It's called Pestle, you know, like mortar and pestle. Uh, It's at pestlechef.app, and I'll have a link to it in the show notes at maccast.com. But basically, it's a recipe manager uh, but really on steroids, it it lets you import recipes from anywhere on the internet. And it has a really cool way of doing that. Basically, when you install the app, it adds a share sheet item that will let you use the share button uh, within your browser from any page that has a recipe on it, basically. And then it slurps in, I'm assuming, with some artificial intelligence because it does a great job of putting it in there. Basically, it pulls in the recipe and puts it into the app and breaks down all the ingredients, all the step-by-step instructions. You can also add um, recipes via a URL. So if you know the URL for the page, you can just drop that in there, or you can even do it manually. And what's cool about the manual feature is it'll let you use the camera on your iPad or iPhone and some OCR technology to import the ingredients. So you just sort of point the camera just like you would... uh, scan you know if you use the scan to pdf feature uh, on your mac you can actually point it at the ingredients list it'll recognize that area as ingredients and then you hit import basically and it'll pull it in and then break down each ingredient line by line and put that into your recipe so you don't have to type it out one by one really really cool and then once you have your recipes in there obviously you can manage them it puts them into categories and and all sorts of things based on you know the food type and and the the category of recipe that it is whether you know it's a soup or it's a main dish all those sorts of things and then when you select a recipe it will give you these step by step instructions so you can have that up in your kitchen as you're making it and you can go from instruction to instruction. And what's great is within the instructions themselves, if it's listing out an ingredient, you can tap on that ingredient. It makes it like a little hyperlink, and it will pop open and show you the measurement for that ingredient. Uh, it also has a list on the left, and you can kind of check off ingredients as you go and you add them to your recipe. Um, but then even cooler with the step-by-step instructions, it has a little microphone icon, and you can turn on hands-free paging. So it will start auto listening and then you can say next or back to go from instruction to instruction step by step and you don't even have to touch your ipad really cool it also has the ability to adjust serving sizes on a recipe so say you have a recipe that's four servings you can with a little slider move that down to two servings and it will do all the ingredient conversions for you automatically it also has 
uh, uh, unit conversions. So if you need to convert from you know one unit to another, that's built in as well. Uh, you can create a grocery list for a recipe you want to make, and it'll throw all the, the ingredients into the Reminders app under a shopping list. Uh, if you purchase the app, because you can get it for free, and it has a lot of free features, uh, but if you purchase the app, you'll get the pro features, and it adds support for things like meal plans, so you can build out your weekly meal plan of all the recipes you want to make for the week. Uh, you can do recipe discovery, which is basically like feeds from the recipes that you import, so it'll recognize hey, this came from this website and it's a recipe website. It has a bunch of other recipes and it can make recommendations for you. And uh, basically you can pull in recipes that way. So lots of features and options that are really, really cool. And best of all right now, uh, if you purchase the app, they are offering a lifetime price. Ultimately, it's going to become a subscription app, but it's a brand new app. So for $4.99, you can get it now and get the lifetime price. Normal pricing is going to be just 99 cents a month or 10 bucks a year. So if you need a great app for managing your recipes, that sounds like a great deal, great price. Oh, and they also have support if, for the new SharePlay technology that's built into FaceTime. So if you want to collaboratively cook with someone over FaceTime and SharePlay, it supports that as well. So just looks like a really cool, fun app. I started adding some recipes into it, and it's really quick and easy. I was very, very impressed by it. Again, the app is called Pestle. Uh, I'll have a link to it in the show notes at mattcast.com. But with that, that is going to do it for this episode of the MacCast. Before I leave you, I would like to thank my show sponsor, Smile, makers of Text Expander. You can get more information and details on Text Expander by visiting textexpander.com slash podcast. Bandwidth for the MacCast is provided by Cashfly. You can find them at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com. And all advertising on the MacCast is handled by Backbeat Media. You'll find them at BackbeatMedia.com. As always, I love hearing from you. If you have a comment, a question, something you'd like to hear covered on a future episode of the MacCast, you can send your emails and audio comments to MacCast at gmail.com. You're also welcome to call in on the listener hotline. That phone number is 281-622-4269, 281-MAC-IM-9. If you need show notes, links to anything that I talked about on this or any other episode of the MacCast, you'll find those on the website. That's at maccast.com. And finally, if you want to follow me on social media, you can find me on Twitter, twitter.com slash maccast. You can check out the MacCast Facebook page over at facebook.com slash the maccast or find me on Instagram just MacCast on Instagram. But that will do it for now. Until next time, I will talk to you all again real soon.